that's something I never really thought of before this subject. Is Australia an Asian country? Is it a Western country? Is it European? He really makes you um, think of these at a deeper level. Hello and welcome back to EmpiroCast. Anarchy is what students make of it. I'm Dylan and with me today are my co-hosts Sunny, Kate, and Voya. Today, we will be providing an overview of two subjects in the Master of International Relations course at the University of Melbourne. This will give current and future MIR students a student perspective into subjects offered as part of the MIR. In this episode, we'll cover international relations theory and Asia in the world. Later in the episode, Kate and Sonny will take us out of Melbourne for our Global Rundown segment, where we'll look at current events in different regions around the world. For this installment, Kate will discuss the recent Pacific Islands Forum, and Sonny will unpack the recent turmoil regarding Jammu and Kashmir. So let's get started, and I'll hand it over to Kate, who's going to be discussing international relations theory. So this semester, International Relations is run by a favourite teacher here at the MIR, Dr. Terry MacDonald. It is an eight-week subject offered in first semester. International Relations theory covers, you guessed it, IR theory. It is aimed to give students a background into the core theories and concepts of IR, equipping students with the academic tools they need throughout their MIR. There are three lots of assessment, two 1,000-word critical analysis reviews of one of the weekly readings and a 3,000-word essay due at the end of the semester. So I'm now joined by Connor Siddle to discuss international relations theory. Did you want to give us a quick background about yourself, Connor? Sure. Uh, So I completed my uh, bachelor's um, in 2017. Uh, My bachelor's was just a basic arts degree, sort of majoring in communications. Um, And then I went there from from there into a job straight into parliament um, in Victoria, So that was sort of when I realised how interesting politics is um, and then I wasn't loving that job so I decided to go back and really do a Master's in International Relations. So I'm in my second year now um, in my MIR. Yeah, nice one. So how did you find the subject as someone who's never studied IR before? Um, I felt it was was a really good subject uh, going into it. I was a little nervous about not knowing anything. Um, but it was a really good entry point into IR theories and the difference, the, the different theories, and it was simple enough that you could understand it without having to go over all the readings again and again every week like some other subjects you need to. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just a really good subject to sort of find an understanding about IR theories. Mm-hmm. Did you find what you learned in the subject useful for the rest of your studies? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I feel like it equips you with the ability to really discuss theories and instead of having to unpack them when you're contributing in class discussion. So you can sort of talk about, you know, uh, you know, a realist theory and like a realist perspective on certain issues rather than having to like constantly go back and revise your notes and see what, you know, each theory actually stands for. Yeah, definitely. How did you find the readings and the workload? Uh, I felt the workload and the readings were quite, it was quite reasonable. I think it was only like two readings a week unless I was just skipping some. Um, but yeah, again, they weren't they weren't overly complex. They weren't readings that you have to really read, you know, three or four times to understand. It was just they didn't always flow um, as well as you'd like, but you could get through them quite, you know, efficiently. And ultimately, if you didn't want to do the whole reading, you could just sort of do the abstract and the conclusion and, you know, look for keywords in the readings about what you need to focus on. Yeah, one thing I found really good about the readings, so they had the kind of normal weekly readings, but Terry also gives you these extension readings, which are kind of extra for people like me who have a background in IR 
which is still academically stimulating. Yeah. So often I would do the extension readings as opposed to the other readings because I found that I had done the other readings throughout my previous four years of studying. So I would just do the extension and they would kind of still sustain me academically and intellectually throughout the course. Yeah, I thought that was a really good way to encompass both um, previous students and new students to the course as well. And then also if you were finding the readings, you know, to be enjoyable, you could go into the extension readings even as somebody who hasn't necessarily studied it before and you could still sort of get a more in-depth understanding of each theory. Yeah, definitely. And I think one thing that Terry did really well is making such a boring subject of IR so interesting. Yeah. And just really accessible. How did you find it? No, I definitely agree. I, Whenever I hear people that are doing IR theory now, I'm just like so jealous that they have Terry as their teacher. And it was, the class uh, discussion was really stimulating and it wasn't, uh, she was able to really um, create robust conversation and debate in class. And I feel like everyone was really comfortable um, being able to say their piece or contribute to the discussion uh, without feeling like they had no background knowledge or that they might have said something stupid. Yeah, definitely. Actually, that's something I've noticed quite a lot in this subject compared to others. So I'm taking it now. And she really welcomes other ideas and she wants to kind of explore them more and to flesh out why people might think this way, whether it's their culture or their work history or previous studies. She's really intrigued into the kind of cultural things that people bring to the table when learning about theory. Yeah, she definitely gets really excited when... Yeah. Which is, which is interesting. It's a good way to sort of um, go about the subject rather than sort of just posing a question to the class and then leaving everyone to talk for five minutes and then coming back and then just sort of nominating one person on each table to say their piece. Yeah, definitely. I definitely think it's one of the favourite subjects of the MIR. I know that I was low-key dreading it when I signed on because I was like, oh, no, I have to learn more theory. But Terry just makes it so exciting and so accessible. Yeah. And I find that her feedback on the assessments are really good as well. Yeah, I just got my assessment back and it's so in-depth and yeah. she like so clearly wants you to do well. Yeah. And she's like, I envision this grade for you. And yeah, she's really good in that way. Yeah, and uh, I think she was saying it last year that everyone's mark between each assessment just goes up and up and up. And I think that's, you know, largely part due to her feedback on uh, the assessments and really highlighting where you're going wrong when she's saying, you know, you're doing this wrong and then highlighting each time you've done it wrong so you can actually see where to improve. Yeah, definitely. I think it shows her real passion for not just academia, but teaching and kind of students as well, which yeah. is important. Some academics don't always quite grasp that kind of student to teacher interaction. Yeah, some of them are more focused on research over education. And then I think Terry balances both quite well so that it's not, she's not some, you know, rigid person who isn't necessarily as great, um, good discussing certain classes, uh, you know, facilitating conversation. She's, like, really good at mastering both. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for joining us, Connor. It's been a pleasure to have you on the Empire podcast. Thank you. So Voya and I will be discussing Asia and the world. Um, so this is a mandatory subject in the Master of International Relations at the University of Melbourne. Um, it is taught by Dr. Sal um, as mentioned in the handbook, this is an advanced introduction to international politics in Asia. The subject explores the shift of global power to Asia and provides a broad coverage of the region's relations with the great powers and international regional institutions, including important issues like democratisation, economic globalisation and security. Regarding the assessments, there are three main components. You have your weekly reflection essays. Um, so each week you're required to submit a 300-word reflection essay in which you critically reflect on true readings prescribed each week. 
There's also a group presentation in which you select a topic from one of the weeks and present to the class. And finally, there's an exam which is structured around the weekly readings. Um, now, just on a personal level, prior to taking this subject, I had little knowledge or interest in Asian international relations or politics. However, with Dr. Sal Keat's energetic and passionate teaching style, his emphasis on critical thinking, and in particular on non-Western IR theories, I have developed a deep interest in Asian IR, politics, and non-Western IR theories. I also liked how the weekly reflective essays forced me to engage with the readings and get more out of the unit. Um, contrary to some of the other subjects where you're not required to write a reflective essay, you can get a bit lazy with the readings, but um, this really required me to delve deep into the readings and really get more out of the unit. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you here. And um, when it comes to the reflection essays, I have to be honest, everyone was quite worried in the beginning. Um, we didn't really know what to expect. So we were, uh, I mean, Saukit even organized a special workshop for us because uh, we were all freaking out. Um, and I mean, let's be honest, uh, you will probably end up doing your reflective essay last minute. <laughs> um, I think everyone can agree on that. But overall, it's, um, I have to say, it's a great way to engage with your readings and um, also putting your own thoughts, you know, mm. and, and your own reflective thoughts. And 300 words can actually be quite tricky. Um, you, once you start, once you delve into the readings, uh, suddenly, you know, you start writing and you have 500 words. Um, but I think, as Saukid was saying himself, like this is very useful for your future jobs when often you need to write something short and on point. Mm. So I think it's a really good um, thing for us to learn how to kind of um, summarize things. Um, well, this is not a, a summarizing, but still put something in um, in less words. And yeah, we got some tips that were very useful uh, that I want to share about how to write the reflectives. Um, first of all, yeah, no summarizing. So the idea is not to summarize the readings. Um, it's more about sharing our own reflections and our own thoughts rather than the author's. Um, it's really a great thing if you bring your own background, actually, to the reflection. So, you know, I coming from Europe, uh, I would sometimes compare, you know, how it's different, how the reading on Asia was different to uh, my own experiences. Um, it's usually two or three uh, texts, and it's good to find similarities between them and then just focus on that and maybe ask one question that you, you want to answer yourself. Um, and on a personal note, I mean, for me, um, this was my first semester, and it was a great introduction to Asian IR. And as a student coming from Europe, uh, I haven't really had much contact um, with uh, Asian IR um, or Asia in my undergrad. Um, my studies were quite Eurocentric. Um, so this was a chance for me to learn about Asian schools of thought and academia and scholars and general challenges um, of the emergence of new Eastern schools of thought. And I mean, Saukit is extremely engaging. I have to say that. I mean, he would make a space for us to actually um, engage in discussions and we would have debates and very heated discussions sometimes, but really 
the whole class would participate, which was pretty amazing. Um, yeah, and I think um, if you recall, he actually um, hosted a, a formal debate where he got former Asia and the yes. world students and current Asia and the world students to have a you know. And he he also liked to provoke us in yes, a sense. Yes. Um, so he wouldn't, as a true you know, he very academic, but he wouldn't really um, show one certain opinion. Mm. Uh, he wouldn't say he's pro this or that. Yeah. He would just give a provoking thought and you know and then a d- heated discussion would start so that was um that was a really great thing um and yeah and just to add on that um kind of a non-class thing um in our first week he um I was in the late afternoon class and um well I I, I think he said it to all the yes. yeah to all the classes Um, so he has this uh, idea of um, these weekly social meetups. So after the class, we, in this case, last semester it was a Wednesday, uh, we would head up to the pub and just, you know, uh, grab a drink and uh, whoever wanted to join. And I, you know, uh, it's such a great way to engage with the lecturer and your fellow students. Uh, in like an informal environment, I think. What do yeah, you it really think? strengthens your networks in the course. It's a great way to you know, get to know other people on a more personal level. Especially yeah. that in our course, it yeah. can be sometimes, you know, we all have hard, our yeah. individual uh, time, yeah. you know, timetable. So. so it's a great way to get people together, which doesn't happen as much in other subjects. Definitely. So, yeah. And I would even, you know, go as far as to say that... Um, um, Some of the events we do now with Empiro, uh, with the meetups in the pub, is kind of a continuation. Inspired by yeah, Asian was inspired world, by yeah. that because we were, you know, the class finished, but we wanted to yeah. go on. Yeah. So, what did you think about um, about Sauke and I the thought, class itself? I thought he was fantastic, um, very energetic, very passionate, and always helpful. So, before my exam, I was a bit worried. I didn't know what to expect, um, and. I was emailing him the, the week prior to the exam and he would respond immediately. He was so helpful and it just made, I was so much more relaxed going into the exam because he was so helpful. So um, he's definitely very approachable and, you know, um, I just thought overall he was a fantastic um, for yeah. the subject. And as, especially as someone who had no interest in Asian IR or politics, I've really grown to develop a deep interest on Chinese politics and Vietnamese and Korean politics. So just the, his way of teaching it was so um, passionate and interesting. So, yeah. Yeah, and also showing that there is, you know, emerging new schools of yeah. thought and that the traditional uh, Western schools of thought can be challenged in a yes, way, you yeah. know, and asking that question um And, you know, being really critical of Western hegemony or Western um, schools of thought dominating international relations theory. That was yeah. Annoying. And, you know, and, and delving into new ideas such as, you know, what are Asian values? Is mm. there such a thing? And asking very interesting questions that made us, again, reflect. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why um, these uh, reflectives um, were really useful. Yeah. And I just like to add, I thought it was very interesting how he focused so much on Australia's position in Asia, because um, that's something I never really thought of before this subject. Is Australia an Asian country? Is it a Western country? Is it European? He really makes you um, think of these at a deeper level. And yeah, it's just very in- interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So um, for everyone who's going to take this class, um, Well, good luck and you're in for something really, really interesting.
I'm not sure if anyone else has noticed this, but 2019 has seen the international community re-engage with the Pacific Islands. I think that this is down to a number of reasons, such as Chinese investment in the region, Russian and Chinese armed deals with Pacific nations, and people are finally listening to Pacific leaders on the ecosystem-destroying, whole nation-disappearing effects of climate change, as well as the shift from the use of term Asia-Pacific to Indo-Pacific. Thus, the Pacific has become important as it emerges as a key stage for future power rivalries. To me, one of the most interesting and also pretty bizarre outcomes is the US calling itself a Pacific nation, with US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo stating that Australia and the US are Pacific friends bound together by an ironclad commitment to shared values at the recent Osmond Forum. For the US, the Pacific Islands are central for US-Australian alliance, with the US reaffirming its commitment to the Pacific region at this Osmin meeting. This comes at a time when Chinese power is becoming increasingly prevalent amongst Pacific Island states, with China acting as a bank to Pacific development. Additionally, the Pacific Island Forum this year in Tuvalu has seen Scott Morrison emphasise Australian commitment to the region as he spoke about how Australia is stepping up in the Pacific. Weirdly, one of the things that I respect the most about Scott Morrison and Maurice Pine is their commitment to the Pacific Islands, however ill-informed it is on the issue of climate change. This pivot to the Pacific, which started under the leadership of Malcolm Turnbull and Foreign Affairs Minister Julie Bishop, has seen increased aid in the region, enhanced diplomatic relations, as well as more recently, Maurice Pine announced the establishment of the Australian Pacific Security College at the Australian National University in Canberra. Ultimately, I think that the Pacific region is going to become a centre for future great power rivalry between China and the US in a close coalition with Australia. We're also witnessing the renewed interest of Russia, France and Britain in the region, thus demonstrating that the Pacific Islands are becoming a greater priority. It is also likely that the Pacific Islands will be the first to experience the nation and ecosystem-destroying effects of climate change, which is an issue that is devastatingly ignored by all of these powers who suddenly have an interest in this region. Thus, I think that 2019 is the beginning of the Pacific Islands becoming a key player in international relations due to both great power rivalries and climate change. Sonny, I was in India doing the development and inequality subject offered by the university, and it seemed like right after I got back to Melbourne, the news was going crazy about Jammu and Kashmir and something called Article 370. Can you tell us a bit about what's going on? Yeah, so um, on the 5th of August 2019, India's Hindu nationalist Paratya Janata Party, also known as the BJP government, they um, issued a surprise order to abolish Article 370, which ensured that the Muslim-majority state of Jammu and Kashmir had um, some sense of autonomy from the Indian Union. I think here it is important to stress that although India is a multi-ethnic and multi-religious society, the majority of India's population does practice Hinduism and Muslims, which account for around 14% of the population, they remain a largely marginalized community, um, politically, socially, and economically. So the Kashmir issue and the remo- removal of Article 370 should be understood within the context of these demographics. Mm. Um, I think it's also important to note that just prior to the removal of Article 370, the Indian government sent in around 35,000 Indian armed forces into the Kashmir Valley, um, where according to some estimates, around 700,000 Indian armed forces are already present. And so Kashmir is the world's most militarised region today. 
35,000, 700,000. It sounds like uh, Prime Minister Modi was kind of expecting mm. some trouble from this move. So mm. has the presence of the armed forces suppressed unrest or has their very presence kind of exacerbated the tensions? Um well, since the revocation of Article 370, um, the Indian Army has imposed an unprecedented lockdown of Kashmir, and this includes cutting all forms of communication, including landlines. So since the 5th of August, um, Kashmiris have not been able to contact anyone outside or within Kashmir. Even on the 12th of August, on which Kashmiris celebrated the festive Eid al-Adha holiday, mm. which is kind of comparable to Easter, mm. um, Kashmiris were not able to reach out to their family or friends to wish them Eid greetings. Um, and so this lockdown includes restricting the freedom of movement of Kashmiris and also placing influential Kashmiri politicians under house arrest. Um, basically, India's decision to repeal Article 370 which ensured the Muslim-majority state officially had its own constitution and um, independence over most matters except foreign affairs, defence and communications has been a very controversial um, move by the BJP government. It has also been criticised widely by multiple human rights organisations and this has also stirred up further tensions between the nuclear states of India and Pakistan. Right. So you said human rights groups are criticizing the Indian government. I take it that while the lockdown in Jammu and Kashmir is unprecedented, human rights violations aren't. Right. Um, so a 2018 UN report um, titled Report on the Situation of Human Rights in Kashmir. Everyone can Google it and look it up. Um, it's, it, it was um, formed by the UN, documented and outlined the historical human rights violations in Kashmir by the Indian Armed Forces and authorities, including killings, abductions, torture and widespread rape of Kashmiri women by the Indian Army. Um, it's also t important to highlight that in Kashmir, the, Indi the 700,000 Indian troops um, receive immunity from prosecution under the Armed Forces Special Powers Act. This law is, again, very controversial and has, according to multiple sources, been exploited by the Indian Army. Um, so, basically, these human rights violations have been ongoing since 1947, but especially over the past three decades. And over time, the Kashmiri people have had little faith in India or the Indian Union. So, for example, the All Parties Hurriyat Conference is an alliance of 26 political, social and religious organisations in Kashmir that collectively speak of um, Kashmiri separatism. Mm -hmm. um, in short, members of the Hurriyat Conference contest the claim contest the claim of the Indian government over Kashmir. Um, some Hurriyat leaders, such as Sayyid Ali Shah Gilani, um, support Kashmir's merger with the state of Pakistan, um, while other leaders, such as Yasin Malik, advocate for the separation of Kashmir from both the states of India and Pakistan. And oh, I think wow. the people in the valley are split on this. Um, there's some reports that say most Kashmiris want to be completely separate. Some say they want to go with Pakistan, but what's unanimous is that they don't want to be with India. Um, and... I think it's important to say that the parties in the Hurriyat Conference are considered more representative of the Kashmiri people, and many regard mainstream Kashmiri leaders such as Omar Abdullah and Mahbubah Mufti to be representative of the Indian state rather than the people of Kashmir. And Article 370 at least officially gave Kashmiri some sense of autonomy from the Indian Union, and its revocation is likely to provoke um, a strong response from the Kashmiri people once this curfew is lifted. Mm. 
Anybody interested in learning more on the history of Jammu and Kashmir should research the partition of British India, as a lot of these modern conflicts are connected to the colonization and subsequent decolonization of the region. Thank you for giving us an idea of what's going on in Kashmir, Sunny. So to finish off, we're going to plug our fortnightly coffee break uh, and pub nights, which are always on a Wednesday, which we really encourage you to do. Um, This is a great way to meet fellow IR students in a more informal setting. And, you know, in this way, you finally don't have to be alone in being that one awkward person at a party who talks about politics because we all do. Um, And to stay up to date uh, with our events and all things Empyro related on our social media, you can find us on Facebook um, as Melbourne Postgraduate International Relations Organization and also on our closed group called Empyro Students. Well, that's it for another episode of EmpireCast. Um, Anarchy is what students make of it. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Yeah. 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 Yeah.